Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the No Lasting City podcast. I'm Scott Corian, your host. Good to be back with you. And the episode today is actually somewhat unexpected. I didn't intend to do this, but as you probably know, there's been a lot of attention the last several weeks to Asbury College and the revivals or seemingly revivals, what some are calling revivals of Christian spirituality that's going on there. It's gotten a lot of attention in our country, which is why I started getting more interested in it. it I mean, it's it's somewhat unique, isn't it, to see mainstream media, CNN, Fox News, Tucker Carlson, people like Barry Weiss and the Free Press, all writing and commenting and asking the question, what's happening at Asbury College? In fact, I think former President Mike T Pence even got onto Twitter and tweeted about it. And so this has gotten national news. And given how unusual that kind of attention is uh, to, to really what is a Christian worship service, I mean, when's the last time a Christian worship service had so much interest in it? Uh, I got interested, obviously. And after thinking about it a little bit, looking at a few things, wanted to record just a few thoughts on it. I've always been interested in how revivalism has shaped American Christianity. And as many of you probably know, our country has uniquely been shaped by revivalism, going all the way back to the First Great Awakening with guys like George Whitfield, theologians like Jonathan Edwards, to the so-called Second Great Awakening, uh, led by Charles Finney and a lot of other guys as well, to Dwight Moody in the late 19th century, to Billy Sunday in the early 20th century, to Billy Graham in the 40s and 50s. And to we have kind of our modern day revivalists as well. Anyway, what I want to talk about very briefly in this podcast is just thinking through the overall posture that I think is helpful when hearing the kinds of reports that we're hearing from Asbury. You know, how should we, as Christians in particular, process that? And I want to say, on the one hand, we should be both optimistic and hopeful. But yet, on the other hand, we, we should also be careful and cautious. So, in other words, we, we ought to guard against being overly cynical when hearing about reports of God working or this is a revival. We should, I don't, I don't want to be overly cynical. And as I'll say a little bit more in just a minute, you know, my stream of Christianity, kind of the Reformed Presbyterian world, would certainly be more prone to that response right? Be, being a little more cynical for reasons I'll get into. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to be overly cynical. Uh, but we also, I think, need to guard against being overconfident and making definitive pronouncements about, oh, this is definitely the hand of God. And everything about this is glorifying to God, those kinds of things. And again, for reasons I'll, I'll get into. So we, we want to be hopeful and optimistic and yet careful and cautious as we think about these things. Now, why hopeful and optimistic? Well, that's the easy one, right? Because of course, of course, we want to see, as Christians, we want to see people come to genuine faith and repentance and trusting Christ. Uh, that, that should be a longing for all Christians. We, we want to see the Spirit of God poured out on, on all flesh, as Acts chapter 2 records at Pentecost. We, we want to see you know, what Isaiah talked about, that, that God would, would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. We long for that day. 
uh, are, are even uh, the confessional standards of, of my church, the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms, when uh, they, they have a section there on the Lord's Prayer. What do we mean when we when we pray the petition of the Lord's Prayer, Lord, your kingdom come? And the answer of our own confession is we're, we're praying that the kingdom of grace, that's God's kingdom here on earth, the kingdom of grace would expand, that myself and others would be brought in it and kept in it. And so we're, we're, we're praying that people would come to faith. We're praying that the church would grow. We're praying that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would profess and bow the knee to King Jesus. We, we want to see this. And of course, you read the book of Acts, and we see this powerful movement of the gospel sweeping through the pagan world, where, where Paul and other of the early Christian missionaries are, are going into cities and preaching about Jesus, and people are coming to faith, and churches are started. And we it, it's right, I think, to want to see a movement of the gospel like that today. You, you know, we, we just started at Sojourn Church, a series through First Thessalonians, and I preached on the first chapter last Sunday, and this was really the theme. I mean, Paul goes into this town of Thessalonica, he preaches about Jesus, and as he's describing what happened, he uses such such wonderful language to describe what happened there. He said, "When we, you know, when we came to you, brothers, the word of God fell with power and in conviction and in the Holy Spirit." Right, we we want that, right? We want to see the word of God fall with power. We want to see that happen in our own day, and certainly we believe that God is at work in our world and is able to do that. And so, all that to say, when we hear the reports of this kind of event at Asbury College or, or any other place, I think we can be hopeful and optimistic. And yet, you know, there is, I think, a need to be cautious and careful in evaluating. Not just this report, but any kind of report like this. Now, now, why, why would I say that? Because this isn't the first revival that, that's happened in America. Revivals and revivalism have been de- has deeply shaped American Christianity, going all the way back to the first Great Awakening, and not always has it shaped Christianity in good ways. There's been some really good things about it. Uh, but there's also some concerning things. Now, specifically for the purposes of this podcast, I just want to talk a little bit about the legacy of the Second Great Awakening and the work of Charles Finney. Charles Finney is without a doubt the most well-known revivalist of the Second Great Awakening, and the way he taught revival, the way he thought about revival, has certainly had profound effects on American Christianity that come down to us even today. So to, to put it in perspective, you know, what, what, what did he do that was so different? When Jonathan Edwards described what we now think of as the first great awakening and people coming to faith, Jonathan Edwards wrote and famously called it the surprising work of God. And so you might say that's one working definition of a revival, right? The surprising work of God. In, in bringing people and blessing people with repentance and faith. And so for Edwards, God was in control. He was sovereign over religious revivals. They, are, they were an expression of his grace to us. Revival descended from above, we might say. It wasn't something you could work up from below. And although there were certain distinguishing marks by which you can analyze whether or not true revival had come, men could not create revival. Okay, so this was by and large the theology of the first great awakening led by guys like Edwards. It's a surprising work of God, and we're, we're, we praise him for it when it comes. 
Now, Charles Finney in the Second Great Awakening departed from this understanding in fairly significant ways. Now, just as a historical note, which I think is interesting, Finney was also an ordained Presbyterian minister at the time when he began to become a prominent revivalist. But he would eventually leave the church under heavy pressure to do so from his fellow Presbyterian ministers. Although he was a nationally known revivalist, they wanted him out. Now, why was that? Well, on the one hand, they were very concerned about the theological errors that Finney were teaching publicly. You, you may have heard the name Charles Hodge. He's a famous Presbyterian Princeton theologian. Well, he led the attack in the 1800s, mid-1800s, on Finney's work, basically saying that it was another gospel that had more in common with the heresy of Pelagianism than with Orthodox Christianity. And so real serious concerns. Now, just to give you an example of this, Finney's most famous sermon that he preached was called Sinners Bound to Change Their Own Hearts. Sinners Bound to Change Their Own Hearts. So just even hearing that title, you can understand how he was diverging in significant ways from kind of Orthodox Christian understandings of original sin, of human ability, those kinds of things. But it wasn't just the theology, it was the practice that began to, to grow concerning. Of course, the two things are related. You can't separate them. But Finney essentially redefined what a revival is. So, so Finney defined a revival as, quote, a revival is not a miracle nor dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is a purely philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means as much as any other effect produced by the application of means, end quote. So a revival is not a miracle nor dependent on a miracle in any sense. Just think about the radically different understanding of revival and how to produce it that comes with that definition, right? No longer is something uh, is a revival something that comes from above, from God, that we recognize and praise him for. We, it's something we can actually work up from below. Uh, instead of merely recognizing a revival and cooperating with it, that was more of the First Great Awakening and certainly Edwards' view, men could now create a revival themselves if they just do the right things. And so that led Finney, that understanding, to the creation of what at the time was called New Measures. He began to do things in revival services that caused a lot of concern about emotional manipulation, social manipulation. And this was another reason why the Second Great Awakening and, and Finney in particular were, were criticized and, and uh, challenged because of these new measures. And I think without getting into all the details, there were some legitimate concerns there. Uh, Bill, moving to Billy Sunday, who was about 50, 60 years later, his heyday uh, from Finney's, he was incredibly successful and yet was an heir of Finney in many ways. He said he had basically the same working definition of revival. It's something that we can produce right now. In fact, uh, Sunday would say in all of the towns he went to, this is a quote from one of his sermons, we may determine tonight whether we will have a spiritual awakening and put the devil in the hospital before the 4th of July. The responsibility has never been with God, never. We can have it now if we will do what God tells us, end quote. 
So you hear a little bit of the rhetorical flair of Sunday for which he was famous for. We can put the devil in the hospital before the 4th of July. But but we may determine tonight whether we will have a spiritual awakening, right? Revival is up to us. It's not with God. It's not a surprising work of God. It is, you know, we can create this if we if we just do the right things. And what are the right things? The right things are anything that works, anything that gets people to, to profess Christ and make a response. It doesn't matter what it is. We will do it. Sunday famously said once, I would stand on my head in a mud puddle if I thought it would win souls for Christ, end quote. Now, the zeal is commendable. Of course, we want to see people come to faith. But the philosophy behind it, it just leads to complete pragmatism. And that's what ended up happening in a lot of revivals and revivalism and led to, I think, some legitimate concerns and critiques about are people really converting to Christ here or is there something else going on? Are there other reasons why uh, people are coming forward and, and making decisions and, and so on? And so my point in saying all this, I, I, I don't want to overly be overly critical. Listen, I believe God was at work in the Second Great Awakening. I believe that God saved people through the ministry of Finney and, and Sunday. I think Sunday in particular, who I know more about, was, was very sincere. And praise God, right? Praise God that he uses imperfect people who don't have it all together to see his kingdom expand. None of us would have any hope. The PCA would have no hope uh, or any other denomination or church if that wasn't the case. So praise God for that. That's a, a wonderfully comforting truth. However, the, 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 the reason I bring all this up is just simply to say the history of revivalism is mixed. And we ought to be careful and cautious and try to think biblically when we hear reports of revival and ask the question, Okay, is there real evidence that God is really at work here? You know, and, and what what should we look for? And, and I think that the passage I mes- mentioned earlier, First Thessalonians, is not a bad place to start. Uh, is you know, any, anytime we hear reports about revival or God's special blessing, I mean, I think it's fair to ask: one, is the Bible prominent? You know, this is what Paul said in First Thessalonians, the word of God came to you in power and with conviction, right? This, the spirit of God typically uses the word of God when creating faith in people, when, when bringing people to Christ. And so is the Bible read and preached? Is that part of this revival at all? I think that's a fair question we should ask. Uh, another lesson from First Thessalonians, uh, are people being called to repentance, is there any recognition of, of sinfulness? You know, it's interesting in the Bible when people actually come into God's presence, there is always a recognition of coming to a holy God, always a recognition of our own sinfulness in light of that. And is there real life change? Is there fruit from this? You know, Paul can say of the Thessalonians, you turned from your idols and you're serving the living God. There's a turning. There's an allegiance shift, which results in real life change. Is is that present? Are we seeing that? And of course, is is Jesus the main message? Anytime the Spirit is at work, the Spirit glorifies Jesus. Uh, Paul can say to the Thessalonians, you you turned, uh, you're waiting for Jesus, you're looking to him for the forgiveness of your sins. is, Is Christ the main message and are people receiving and resting in his work? Right? Is that is that what's happening at this revival? So all that to say, when we hear reports of revival in Asbury or anywhere else, I, I think we can be hopeful and prayerful and optimistic, and yet we need to be cautious and ask these kinds of questions. Now, as far as 
Asbury is concerned, I'll be honest, I, I don't have enough information to really know. I, I did listen to a few podcasts, read some articles about it. What I read and heard was actually really, really encouraging that, that this really is God is, is at work in the lives of these students and many other people. Uh, but as one of the school administrators said in an interview I heard, and I think this is very wise, you know, they, they're not calling this a revival. They're shying away from that and saying, well, time will tell. Like something's happening. We're not sure what it is. Uh, but really, whether or not God has really been at work you know, a decade from now, two decades from now, is there fruit, right? Has there been real repentance? The time is really what will help us look back and see, yes, this was a quote-unquote revival or or not. One final comment finishing up. I personally found it very interesting that so many people traveled to go to Asbury. Tens of thousands of people let, you know, came from all over not only Kentucky, but other states and even other countries and waited in line to go into the chapel there on campus to to be part of what was going on. Now, that to me is, on the one hand, it's really understandable. We want to be where we think God is at work. And if we hear reports that God is giving a special blessing uh, over at Asbury College, the Holy Spirit is present there, like it's understandable that Christians would, would want to go there. Totally understandable. And I, I, I think certainly if if this had happened somewhere in Phoenix, I probably would have gone too, uh, because I would have been interested and wanted to see what was what was going on. Now that being said, part of my concern about revivalism as a whole is that it does it can it can downplay the ordinary, the way God works in ordinary ways, and and can give the impression that we need to have some extraordinary experience to know God or be in his presence, or we've got to go on some spiritual pilgrimage like to Asbury, wherever God, we hear God is at work, because that's not available to me where I live and in my life. And so I've got to do this. We, We shouldn't believe that. That's not true. For most of church history and most of our life, God shows up and is present and works in our life through very ordinary things, not through revivals or big camp meetings or things like this. Um, even these services now in Asbury, I believe that they're officially over publicly and life will get back to normal at Asbury College. And that doesn't mean that God's not working, right? I, I think one of the best definitions I've ever heard of revival, revival is God's extraordinary blessing on his ordinary means of grace. God's extraordinary blessing on his ordinary means of grace. In other words, revival is not something radically new or different. It's just an, you might say, an increase of what he's already doing through his ordinary means of grace. Now, for those who aren't familiar with that language, that's a reference to the Bible, the Word of God read and preached, the sacraments, right? God meets us at those things. He gives grace. He builds up his believers in faith and comfort through the word and the sacraments. And he does that every week uh, as we gather in our churches to worship him, as we hear the word read and preach, as we come to the table, as we pray together, as we enjoy community with other Christians, right? As Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there. There I am among them. And I, I say that just as an encouragement, you know, Whatever our take on the Asbury revival might be, I think this much is true. We don't need to travel to Asbury to be in God's presence. Uh, God is present and is working in our lives. Uh, He's present when we gather 
to worship him. You know, we start at, at our church uh, a, with a call to worship, which is a reminder to us that when we come into worship, we're actually entering the presence of God. He is inviting us in. He's calling us into his presence, and he is there. Hebrews chapter 12, when we gather together to worship, we, we, we have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Now, we don't always see or have some tremendous spiritual experience at church on Sunday, but that doesn't mean that God's not there and he's not at work. And I appreciated along those lines, I, I again, one interview I heard from a student at Asbury said as much and said this, right? There, there, we, we just want, they said, we, we want people to know there's nothing special about Asbury College. There's nothing special about our chapel or our student body. You don't need to come here to experience God. You can do that anywhere. And I think that's absolutely true and just an, should be an encouragement for us all. So let's let's pray and be hopeful that God has been at work and changed many lives for Christ at Asbury over these last few weeks. Let's pray that that expands to other college campuses that look at this and, and that there really is a spiritual hunger in this generation that seemingly is so far from God and that God would work to bring people to faith and repentance and trust in Christ. Uh, let's also pray that he's just present and active in our churches every week, that every week as the word of God is read and preached in churches across the country, across the world, that God would bless that and that it would fall with power and with conviction and in the Holy Spirit to the end that his kingdom of grace expands in our world, ourselves and others brought in it and kept in it. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of No Lasting City. Join me again next time. Goodbye. 